Boy, I really enjoy that last song. Um, the first time I had learned that song was in Spanish. We were uh, doing a missions trip to Mexico for our brother uh, Joseph Urban, and uh, they were singing it in Spanish. And so the whole time I was there, I was, you know, uh, I was singing that, that same hymn, but in Spanish. And I had never even heard it in English, so uh, uh, I really know it. <laughs> it's in me. Uh, okay, so we are uh, looking at uh, the same passage again, and we have been going painstakingly through uh, this section, which I call really the heart of the letter of Hebrews, which is dealing with the new covenant. And so we will continue to do that now, and uh, before I do that, let's pray together, ask the Lord to help us and to bless our time, okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we definitely need your help. We are certainly in need of your help, and every hour we need you. And Lord, we just ask for your help now as we look at your word. Please help us, Lord, to understand what your word declares. And Father, we pray that you would open up our understanding to, to know and to behold these things and to savor these things and treasure these things in our hearts because they are so marvelous and they are so wonderful. Help us to know from these precious truths today, Lord, that you are concerned with what we do with our mind and our heart. And Lord, most of all, you are concerned to dwell with us, to be our God and so that we would be your people. And so, Father, I just pray that you would uh, give us a understanding of our covenant commitment to you and how it is that we should live in the new covenant for your glory and for your namesake. We pray these things all in the wonderful name of Jesus that gives us access into all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 12, I wanted to begin by reading that verse only because it is very pertinent to what Hebrews is addressing. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That really is sort of the, the backdrop of the new covenant, that prior to the new covenant and prior to us having a saving relationship with God in Christ, this is who we were. We were strangers. We were alienated. We were outside of the covenant promises. We were without hope. We were without God, and we were in the world if it couldn't be any worse. Not only are we devoid of hope, not only are we devoid of the living God, but then when Paul says you were in the world, what that means is you lived in this present evil age without any covering or protection whatsoever. You had no ability to withstand the forces of evil in this world. You were altogether exposed, exposed to the wrath of God, exposed to sin, exposed to the devil, exposed to the, the present evil age. And so what the covenant does, what the new covenant does, is it takes us from a place of alienation to a place of friendship. Oh, we go from hostility to amity. We go from being haters of God to being lovers of God. That is what the new covenant has done for us. Now, we begin 
uh, looking at this passage of Scripture. And what we're looking at now as last week we dealt mainly with really the, the fact that in the new covenant we have a greater redemption than the old covenant and the fact that we have a greater covenant bond with God in the new covenant because you see that there at the end where he says, they, bro- they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Well, we continue on with the benefits of the new covenant. And the first benefit is this, that they will all, all those in the covenant, they will all have a new heart. This is one of the reasons why I don't believe you are in the new covenant if you are not regenerate. It is not enough to associate with the church. It is not enough to have Christian parents. It is not, to have, not enough to have a Christian upbringing. If you are not regenerate, meaning if you do not have the new birth, if you have never truly been saved, brought out of darkness into light, if you've never brought out of death into life, if you've never been made alive again, then you are in fact not a new covenant member. Because this scripture is clear, crystal clear, that one of the things that God does is that He renews the heart. And so, how does that process happen? Because here in verse 10, let me, let me just read up to this point of verse 10 again in Hebrews 8. It says, for this, uh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. You see that? And so what is being taught here is literally an internalization of the law of God. The Word of God having gone from an external principle that hovered over the life of the covenant people in the Old Testament has now been put into our very heart. God couldn't get any more intimate with us if He tried. He wrote His law into our heart. And this has always been God's expectation. Um, If you would, look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 45. It is not just enough to know what God wants. It's not just enough to know what God requires. It's not just enough to know what are God's demands. What are His standards? More than that, God has always wanted the law to have an effect on our heart, so much so that we respond with gladness and and a, a, a joyful obedience to the law of God. This has been the design all along. The problem is not with the law of God. The problem is with the lawbreaker. Deuteronomy 28 verse 45 says, All these curses will come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping His commandments and His statutes which He commanded you. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God with duty. It's not what it says. You did not serve the Lord your God with principle. That's not what it says. You did not... uh, Serve the Lord your God with perfection. That's not what it says. It says, with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all these things. What was missing was affection. They knew the law of God. Listen, if you were a 
If you were a, a young Jewish boy or girl in ancient Israel, many of them had the law memorized. They had, many of them could recite to you what the law was. They could recite to you what the commandments of the Lord were. were. But they had no savor of them. They had no ability to delight in these laws. And they did not keep those laws. You know, when we speak about delighting in the law of God, which is what happens at regeneration when a person is a member of the new covenant, you are given the capacity to delight in God's law. No longer, as John says in 1 John chapter 4, no longer are the commandments just a burden. They are now a delight. But when we talk about having God's law written into our hearts, this is ultimately messianically understood. I don't even know if that's a word, messianically. (laughs) You probably think that a lot when you hear me preach. Is that a word? (laughs) It is today, messianically. Um, Psalm 40, turn with... Turn to Psalm 40 with me, if you would. And the reason why I, 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 I zeroed in on this one, there were many passages I could have gone to to prove this, but I went to Psalm chapter 40 for a specific reason, because after all, we are in Hebrews. But in Psalm 40, beginning in verse 6, this is what the psalmist declares. Sacrifice, meal offering, you have not desired. So there is something beyond just the performance of sacrificial duties. You have not required this. Burnt offering, sin offering, you have not required. In other words, these animal sacrifices that were being performed under the old covenant, that was not the ultimate purpose of the covenant. Then I said, behold, I come In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And I say, messianically understood, because of course, Psalm 40, these verses are quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7 of Jesus. So this, the psalmist was thinking in this passage of his future messianic seed, the the, the true Davidic son, the true Davidic king who would delight in the law of the Lord. But here's the problem, folks. What What is natural for Christ is foreign to us. For Jesus, it comes naturally to obey the law of God. It is It is part of his nature. It is innate to him. But to us, it is foreign. For us, we do not have a natural disposition to love the law of God. In other words, what it requires is transformation. We have to be transformed. But this is what the law, this is what the covenant had always been prophesying. So look look with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, because when we speak of the believer's inward transformation, what we're talking about here is a spirit-wrought work in the heart of God's people. A spirit-wrought work in uh, in in our hearts. And this is precisely what the new covenant had always been promising. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, you know this passage if you've done any study at all on the doctrine of regeneration. 
Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so, not only does God promise to put His very Spirit within us, but notice also that He promises to put a new Spirit within us. And there it is not a capital S, it is a lowercase s, which means something like a disposition. So it's a, a, a sort of a parallel of new heart, new Spirit, same idea. Um, that's the way that the Hebrew parallel, parallelism works. This is the, the, the Old Testament is full of this, saying the same thing in parallel, different ways of saying the same exact thing. For example, another passage, Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 11. And these passages out of Ezekiel, this is where Jesus is getting his theology, if you would, of the new birth in John chapter 3. You read, it, you read any good critical commentary on John chapter 3 where Jesus says, you must be born again. And you will note that what the commentaries are saying is that language of the new birth did not begin with Jesus. It began with the Old Testament. It began with the prophets. And that's why Jesus can look at Nicodemus and say, you are the teacher of Israel. Don't you know these things? In other words, if you know what Ezekiel says, then you know that what I'm talking about is that you need a new heart. You need a new birth. Ezekiel eleven nineteen speaks about our new God-given disposition through the new covenant. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out and their flesh uh, and, and of out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now, what is that? Some of you, do you get it? I hope you get it. That what he's saying here, heart of stone, heart of flesh, in your flesh, heart of flesh. What, what is he saying? What's a heart of stone like? A heart of stone is hard, right? A heart of stone is difficult to work with, right? You've got to chip away at it. Sometimes you might feel like you do have a heart of stone. God's still chipping away at you. But the point that the prophet is trying to make is this. Israel, in terms of the covenant community, did not have a responsive heart to God. Their heart was dead. Ephesians chapter 2, they were dead in trespasses and sins. And so what God has to give us is a responsive heart, a beating heart, spiritually speaking, if, a heart that is moldable, shapeable, a heart that God can shape and mold, and, and a heart that will respond to Him in gladful, joyful obedience. That's what it's all about. Regeneration is the point of contact. The new birth, that's the dynamic that brings all of these new covenant things to reality. All of these promises that were given to us. The realization is in the fact that we are in union with Christ. And as, as part of being united to Jesus Christ, what does Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says? God made us alive together with Him. That's regeneration language, regeneration. So how does, the, how does this dynamic come about? When he says, I will put my laws in their mind, I will write them on their heart. How does that come about? It doesn't come about by church membership. It doesn't come about by your baptism. 
The new heart means that your heart has been genuinely cleansed, renewed by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. In other words, this is what it looks like to internalize the law of God. If you would, the the Spirit comes to reside in you and He brings His law with Him. And He makes you gladfully, gratefully obedient to God. Now, I don't want to overlook these two powerful words in verse 10 of Hebrews 8. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their heart. Two dynamics here. One, we could, what we could call the noetic effect of the new covenant. In other words, the noetic effect meaning uh, noetic meaning of the mind comes from the Greek word naos, mind. And so you hear about the noetic effects of the fall, right? And how because of sin and our fall into sin, our mind has been ruined by the fall. We've gone into, into a place of mental epistemological darkness. And we need our minds to be renewed by God. And this is exactly what the, what the law of God has the power to do in a transformed believer. Look at uh, Psalm 19, or I can just read it to you. Psalm 19 in verse 7 and 8. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you feel simple? Simple-minded? Gullible? easily deceived, easily persuaded, easily convinced of this or that or the other thing. Study the law of the Lord. And there, it, there, obviously, it's referring to the entire Bible, not just, let's say, the Ten Commandments, but all of God's law, all of God's revelation has the power to transform, to make us go from a place of simplicity in a negative way to spiritual wisdom, to grow us The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In other words, part of the saving power of the new covenant is that its ability to impart to us the hidden wisdom of God. His spiritual wisdom takes out our spiritual darkness. Let's look at some of these verses. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 6, because this is what is overcome in the new covenant. This is what God overcomes when He brings us into the new covenant and into relationship with Him. Romans chapter 8, verse 6, probably the principal text that deals with the noetic effects of the fall. It says there in verse 6, you know this passage, especially if you've studied anything dealing with the doctrine of total depravity, you'd have read these verses and probably know them and memorized them. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. So you have two principles. The principle of the flesh, which is the sphere of unbelief, the sphere of the unregenerate, and then the sphere of the spirit, the principle of the spirit, which gives gives life and peace. That is the sphere of salvation. Because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. You see that? It is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do it. Dunamis. 
It, is not, it does not have the ability to do it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you see, this is the maddening thing that the new covenant overwhelms, overcomes the fact that people in their fleshly minds, in their carnal, unregenerate mind, they are not only hostile to God, but they cannot undo their condition. They cannot help themselves. They cannot bring themselves into a place of fellowship and friendship with God. They're not friends of God. They are enemies of God, for it was the Apostle Paul himself earlier on in the text that says, when we were, while we were his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. He says in Romans chapter 1 that we were haters of God, lovers of self and haters of God. That's what we were. And so what has resulted, what this has resulted in is a hostile alienation between us and God. We are alienated and we are hostile to our God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21, although you were formerly alienated, watch this, and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's remarkable. I'll come back to that in a minute. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 says, says this, so this I say and I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. In other words, the new covenant has the power. You want to talk about the benefit of the new covenant? My dear friends, before we were saved, we languished in a state of spiritual stupor. We were in a state where we were essentially comatose in our sin. We were dead, numb, irresponsive. We were like a dead body on the sidewalk. The paramedics try to revive, and they're pumping the chest, and they're doing everything they can, and they're shocking the body, trying to bring it back to life, and we cannot bring ourselves back to life. It takes a supernatural, life-giving power of the, of the Spirit of God to bring us to life. That's what He does. But notice why the noetic effects of the new covenant are so important. Because cognition is always associated with conduct. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. This is why the battle of the mind is the place where we have to win. We have to win the battle there. Because it begins in the mind, and then by the time that it comes out into our deeds... It has just simply manifested what was there all along. And so we got to win the battle in the mind. Look at how this works. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another. That's a deed, right? Bad deed. That's a work. It's a bad work. You laid aside the old self, watch this, with its evil practices. That's talking about your conduct. And you've put on the new self who's being renewed with new practices. It's not what it says. It's being renewed to a true knowledge. You see that? According to the image of the one who created him. In other words, this is the reverse of the curse. It was Adam and Eve, after all, who were created in the image of God. 
And when they fell, they fell epistemically. Epistemic just means dealing in the realm of knowledge. They fell epistemically. Their knowledge was tainted. Their knowledge became fallen, ruined, corrupt, polluted, evil. I mean, think, think about the fall. I didn't bring my water up here. Think about the fall. The fall is such that when the fall transpires, the whole issue is epistemology. It's an ep- epistemic fall. You're gonna make the. You're gonna step out in faith, brother. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> the devil tells Eve, "Has God really said?" That's it, folks. That is the difference between life or death, heaven or hell, eternal joy, eternal torment. Right there. So much so that Eve, because she didn't kill the serpent on the spot, but kept listening to the fallen wisdom of the serpent, went from doubting the word of God to then concluding false things about God. No, 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 no. For God knows that on the day that you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. What is the devil doing there? He is, oh, this is how diabolical the fall was. Not only is the devil casting doubt on the Word of God, but the devil is saying, trust my word over the Word of God. And the devil is saying that my word is saying that God is actually trying to keep good things from you. (laughs) What has the devil done? Notice what the devil has done. He has positioned himself in a place where he is now more moral than God. That is how diabolical and evil the devil is. Oh, don't think it's a little Sunday school story that you're just going to read, a little coloring book story. The devil, when it says he was craftier than the other beasts, is just trying to, to give us some analogy of just how diabolically, in a very sinister way, how diabolically genius the devil is. Notice the end of the syllogism. The devil is smarter than God and more moral than God. Incomprehensible. And so when we follow the wisdom of the serpent, God gives us over to, to the futility of our mind. So when I'm standing there on college campus and I'm preaching to a couple hundred students and I'm hearing all of these false things about God, what I'm dealing with is the futility of the mind. The futility of the mind. And thanks be to God that through the new covenant, the futility of the mind can be corrected. We can have our minds subdued so that we begin to think the thoughts of God properly after Him, in keeping with Him, in line with Him. Because if we don't think the thoughts of God after Him, meaning if we don't follow God in His train of thought, then we are out of step with God. And we are out of sync and we are futile in our thinking. So I want to drive home the idea of the effect, noetic effects of the new covenant, but also what I call the experiential effects of the new covenant because the author does, just, does not just focus in on the mind, but he also focuses in on the heart. Dianoia, cardia. I think he meant those to rhyme. 
They do that in the Bible. Dianoia speaks of the mind, the capacity to understand, the capacity to have knowledge and to make logical uh, uh, connections. That is what is at stake in the mind. And the heart, what is the heart? The heart, I like what John Owen said. He says, it takes the law of God that has been put into the heart and it makes it actually effectual. Effectual. In other words, it's not just that what God does is that he gets you to start thinking new stuff, right? No, the heart means God has brought it all the way home to you. It is part of your new affections for God so that exactly what Deuteronomy 28 was saying, what was missing there is present in the new covenant. We delight in the law of God. We rejoice. We do it gladly. We do it with joy. Our hearts are overflowing. We look at the law of God and it is no longer a threat. It is a treasure. It is a treasure. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a glorious psalm that we should all be meditating on because it's all about the Word. This is like the preacher's favorite psalm, right? The Word, the Word, the Word, the Word, the Word. And in Psalm 119, you have a virtual theology of what it means to love the Word of God. It is not enough just to know it. Folks, it is not enough just to know the Word of God, know the law of God. I will remind you of what Paul told the Thessalonians, that who will be judged but those that did not love the truth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, they did not love the truth so as to be saved. Plenty of people, atheists, agnostics, skeptics, know-it-alls, you go up to them and you talk to them. They know a lot of things about the Word of God. I'm amazed sometimes when I'm talking to an a, a atheist or agnostic or a skeptic liberal college students. I'm amazed sometimes how much of the Bible they've actually memorized and learned. And they can tell you, you know, all sorts of specifics about the Bible. But it is not enough just to know these things intellectually, abstractly. But they have to come home to us existentially emotionally, um, passionately. In other words, in the new covenant, God imparts to us a God-given zeal and conviction about the Word of God. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 47. I was just going to read the whole psalm, but then I thought, no. <laughs> That's another Lord's Day right there altogether. <laughs> uh, Verse 47 says, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Can you say that? I really want you to ask yourself that tonight. Over dinner, when you're alone, when everything else is done, ask yourself, do I, number one, delight in the commandments of God? Number two, do I love them? Or is it still sort of this burden sort of this weight that you've got to do all this Christian stuff. The way to have a glorious Christian life is very simple. Love. 
That's not this cheap, generic, shallow, surface-level love that the world tells us about all the time, right? Just love, right? God is just love. Don't talk about anything but love. No, 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 no. But in the Christian life, I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love does no wrong. Amazing how powerful love is. Is there any wonder why Paul in Galatians chapter 5, when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit and he mentions love, he says, against these things there is no law. In other words, there is no prohibition against loving. (laughs) You can love as much as you want. You will never out-love God. God doesn't put any limits on how much you can love. He may put limits on how you love. As Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10 tell us, or verse 11, with discernment. Love with discernment. Verse 113, Psalm 119, verse 113. Let's just go through some of these, and I am very tempted to preach a, a sermon, as you can see, on every single verse. I can't help it. Verse 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. This is how much David loved God's law. He saw mankind as altogether double-minded, fickle, right? Doesn't that describe our generation today? Fickle, untrustworthy, unsettled, wishy-washy, no convictions, no resolve. But David says, I love your law. Verse 119, maybe this would be an easy one to memorize. 119, 119. You have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your law. See, this will test how much we love the law of God. Do you love the fact that God will one day bring in a judgment that will purge all the wicked out like dross? And will you then still say with God, I love your law? Verse 40, or excuse me, verse 140, your word is very pure, therefore your, your servant loves it. The word of God is so pure and purifying that we love it. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Look at verse 163, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Verse 165, those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Isn't that glorious? You want to have a stable, secure, confident Christian life? Love God's law. Love His Word. Become infatuated with the Word of God. One of the worst things that I ever hear from new converts and new Christians is, I don't really like to read. Then how are you going to love the law of God? This is like Chalkboard, you know, the the whole thing. You don't like to read. Verse 167. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. See, have you heard people say, yeah, I do love the law, right? I do love God. Yes, I do. Yes. I concede. I love the Word. But do you lavish praise on the word? That's what David is doing. I love your law exceedingly. 
Oh, man, you can tell if someone's dead. You can tell if someone has no zeal for God. There's no passion. There's no, there's no heart. Come on, I want to see heart in every person in this church. Heart for the Word of God. Don't just do all the right things and say all the right stuff. Where is your, where is your affection for the law of God? Where is your joy in these things? Okay, last point. I had two points today. They will all have a new heart. Benefit number one. Benefit number two. They will all be unified. Let's read the end of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. Right? Yes, another sermon with one verse. You, are, you guys are the most gracious church I've ever met. <laughs> It's evidence that I love the law. What can I say? <laughs> Listen to what it says here. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I simply cannot tell you in terms of understanding theology, doing theology, how important that little phrase is. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Why? Because if you had like x-ray vision, and you can look through all the little parts of the Bible as if it was a great, a great, I don't know, a great mosaic or a labyrinth, a digital labyrinth where you can see through every letter and every word. You would find that that phrase is found here and there and 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 here and there, all throughout the book, all the way to the very end. That phrase, I will be their God, they shall be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. That is found all over the Word of God. It's speckled everywhere. And do you think God is trying to tell us something? What he's trying to tell us is, this is the point of it all. The point of it all, my dear friends, is to be with God. The soul was made for him. We were made to know him, to be in union with him, to love him, to enjoy him. That's why God redeems us and He transforms us into the image of His Son so that we will have the capacity to live with Him and to enjoy Him forever, as the great confessions say. To glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever and ever. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your descendants throughout all your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you, isn't that amazing? To be God to you and to your descendants after you, I will give you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. Amazing. What about under Moses? Leviticus 26, 12, right in the heart of the law. Moses says, God speaking here, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Jeremiah 11:4, speaking of the old covenant, I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice. And do according to all that I command you, so that you shall be my people, and I will be your God. What Jeremiah 11.4 is saying is that's the reason God delivered the people out of Egypt. 
to be in covenant union with His people. What about in terms of the new covenant? Well, obviously this has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. How about this verse? Matthew 1, 21. You shall call His name Emmanuel. God with us. And you see, we take that verse, and a lot of times we use that verse to try to, pull, try to prove on a point of apologetics the deity of Christ. And right, that's right, that's absolutely right. That verse is talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. It certainly proves it, but where does that idea for Matthew come from? It comes from Isaiah. In the context of the prophecies that are made about a future deliverance in a new covenant with a future deliverer, Christ, where God will finally dwell with his people. <laughs> to be your God. Listen, folks, I will tell you right now that what God is saying to our church through this mouth is he wants to be your God and you will be his people. And we will live in covenant harmony with God for all eternity. Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. That is what, the, this is the greatest part of the story. We reach the greatest part of the story. This is the, the best part of the movie. This is it. This is the climax. Are you enjoying it? Because this is what the whole Bible is about. God dwelling in perfect harmony with His covenant people that He has redeemed through Jesus Christ. And He puts a new heart in our... He, he, he gives us a new heart. He, he puts His law in our mind. He puts His law in our heart. He takes out the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh so that our heart can beat for Him, so that our heart can love, has the capacity to love our covenant-keeping God. Folks, this is the way that God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, takes us from a place of utter godlessness and hopelessness and gives us fellowship and comfort. If you do not have Christ, if Christ is not your sacrifice, if He is not your Savior, I am here to tell you that you are hopeless and godless. You're without God. You don't have any hope. And worse of all, you're being sent out into a very mean, cruel, evil, sinister world. But what God has done to rectify the problem is the greatest thing He could have ever done. He sent His Son. Let the white shores of Jesus' sacrifice wash over you. Let the horizon of the Son of God come up to you. See the salvation of God. See what He has done to put you in a right, comfortable, or to use the words of the prophets, to set you on a broad plane. Ah! Oh, God wants to give you a home because without Him you are homeless. Without Him, you are an alien, sojourner. You're cast out. You don't belong. Is there anything worse than not belonging? But God, in His grace, wants to bring you into His home 
into his house. You know, my grandfather, my father's father, my sister will tell you about this. We used to all laugh at him and joke about him because he had this wild dream that he would sit and ramble on about. And he would say, you know, one day I'm going to buy a big old farm and all of our families, and he would look at my sister and I and everybody, your side of the family and your side of the family, both sides of the family, we're going to bring everybody in. And we're all going to live in a nice ranch together and we're going to have this beautiful home and it's going to be what? It's going to be peaceful and great. And we would always say, oh, come on, Grandpa. You know, that's a great dream, isn't it? That's kind of like what the Bible's saying. The Bible's saying we ought to dream not of a not of, a, not of a dream that's not within our grasp, but we ought to dream about the reality that it's coming, that God's people, unified people, all of His people united in the covenant with God, that we are going to go home with Him, that we are going to get our inheritance once and for all and live on a broad plain with one another. And it will be paradise. It will be so wonderful. No mosquitoes like Texas. Right? No heat like Texas either. <laughs> it's going to be perfect. No tornadoes, no earthquakes. Do you hear about the earthquake in Chile? 8.5 or something? I got a missionary friend in Chile. He said he felt it as a 7.5. I said, what? He said, yeah, it was like, kind of like riding a boat. I said, I, I long for the day when we won't have any more earthquakes. No more natural disasters. No more diseases. No more of any of that. And what does the new covenant promise us? It promises us an eternal inheritance where God will be our God and we will be His people. Father, it's not a dream. Thank you that it is more real than this life seems to us now. Oh, Lord, Help us to have a loose grip, Lord, in this world. Help us to not find our all in all here. Help us to not invest as Jesus, our glorious Savior, told us. Help us not, Lord, to store up our treasures in this place. Because this place is like a broken cistern. It cannot hold water and it cannot satisfy. But Lord, your word assures us, 1 Peter chapter 1, we have an inheritance which is imperishable, incorruptible, will not fade away, reserved for us in heaven. Thank you for your new covenant that promises that one day we will come into the heavenly city, into the heavenly Jerusalem, that one day we will reach our inheritance, and that inheritance above all things is that God will be our God and we will be His people. For that, Lord, and for many other things, we thank You. Thank You.